1: This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Weiner. The recent fires across the Pacific states demonstrated some of the effects of deepening climate change, but some of the most far-reaching effects are being felt by poor people in low-lying island nations. Thanks to the lifestyles of the wealthy of the world, almost 200 million people will need to leave their homes as seas rise and increasingly severe storms hit. That's according to the National Academy of Sciences. Poor people have already been trapped by climate disasters, among other places, in the Bahamas. Sonia Shaw went to the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian. That was a Category 5 monster that hit in September 2019, a year ago. She wanted to see what's happening in one low-lying set of islands. Sonia is an investigative journalist and author of critically acclaimed and award-winning books on science, human rights, and international politics. Her new book is The Next Great Migration, The Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. She's been a writing fellow at the Nation Institute and the Puffin Foundation. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Scientific American, and The Nation. She's been featured on Fresh Air with Terry Gross and other NPR shows, as well as CNN, Al Jazeera, and BBC. Her TED Talk on malaria has been viewed by more than a million people. I'm one of them. We reached her today in Baltimore, Sonia Shaw, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, we think of the Bahamas as an island vacation paradise and a tax haven for the wealthy. It has no income tax, no capital gains tax, no inheritance tax, no tax on corporations. But the people you visited several months after Hurricane Doria hit were not high net worth individuals.
0: No, they were not. I was focusing mostly on the Haitian community there, which is actually the biggest minority group in Bahamas. They're not talked about very much, but uh, this is a pretty booming uh, subpopulation on the islands. And they were really the most exposed to the uh, damages of Hurricane Dorian. And what happened in the aftermath seems to have left them even more exposed.
1: The Bahamas got their independence from Britain in 1973 was that a good thing for the Haitians who lived there?
0: mean, oh, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think there's a very deep-seated feeling in Bahamian culture that they are very different from other Caribbean peoples and very different in, in particular from Haitians. And I think that was part of developing a national identity for people in Bahamas after independence. So to distinguish themselves as separate from other Caribbean people and other Caribbean minorities that were present in the islands, they really had to come up with a new way of thinking about themselves. And a lot of that seems to have been about distinguishing between The Haitian people who are seen as people from, you know, a country that had a very violent revolution that were sort of, you know, less civilized than the people of the Bahamas. And and that was a very important part of sort of nation building at that time, because there wasn't really otherwise a, a very strong sense of national identity in Bahamas.
1: Haiti is something like 60 miles to the southwest of the Bahamas. On the other side of the Bahamas is Miami. So if you're in a boat going from Haiti to Florida, you probably pass the Bahamas. I learned from your piece in The Nation that U.S. immigration and homeland security has noticed this fact about the map.
0: Oh, yes, they have. And so, you know, Bahamas is sort of the main landmass between Haiti and the United States. And so Bahamas has become very important in terms of um, the U.S.'s effort to control Haitians' arrival. In the United States and even their capacity to make a a asylum claim if they so desired. So, you know, so Bahamas has played a really important role in um, helping the U.S. Border, Border Patrol, Coast Guard, and other agencies to repel Haitians from reaching the United States in the first place, whether it's, you know, getting security aid or, you know, there's Coast Guard and other American I- official agencies that are present all over Bahamas, sort of patrolling their seas and and making sure that the Bahamas themselves don't allow any Haitians to come into the country in a way that would make it easy for them to then reach Florida and the, and the rest of the United States.
1: Let's talk now about Dorian. Of course, when Dorian headed for the Bahamas, the, the rich white people took off in their private jets or helicopters. Uh, category 5 means 185-mile-an-hour winds. What was it like there for the people who, who couldn't leave?
0: Well, that that was an, an ama- amazing stories to hear about when I went back, of course. I mean, most people who didn't leave probably died, um, and there hasn't been a very good uh, record of how many lives are lost. You know, of all the people who are living on these islands, there was the Haitians, who are mostly the workers who are kind of, you know, cleaning the hotels and tending the gardens of the second homeowners and resorts and everything that are on these fancy islands. Um, and then there's a tourist, and then there's just a, you know, a, a local Bahamian population um, without Haitian ancestry. And those people mostly evacuated. So pe- you know, there was an emergency evacuation order. So most people were able to leave, but from what I could piece together, the Haitian communities were pretty much just full you know, right as Jorian was bearing down. And these are people who had lived through many hurricanes in the past, of course, you know, but almost everyone I talked to who had survived it said that this, it was, it it wasn't even like a hurricane. It was like something completely new to them.
1: There's a lot of different islands that are part of the Bahamas. You visited one called Abaco, is that the way you pronounce it?
0: That's right. So the Abaco Island and Grand Bahama were the two They're the two northernmost islands of the Bahamian archipelago, and they're the ones that were hit by Dorian. And Dorian really stalled on top of those two islands for the 36 or 40 hours that it stalled. So the rest of the Bahamian um, islands were not affected really at all. So they just got a little bit of, you know, hard weather. Um, But these two islands were, in, in particular, you know, devastated. And Abaco had one of the largest Haitian populations out of all of Bahamas Um, and they're mostly in these sort of large shanty towns that were essentially just not evacuated so people are just living there and these are you know shanty towns that are handmade shacks and and homes that are very closely you know settled right together there's not a lot of infrastructure i mean they literally have these tiny little passageways between the homes where you can't even get you know an emergency truck through for example
1: and uh, the storm surge. What was the storm surge on Abaco?
0: Um, so, the storm surge, from what I could understand, was at least 20 feet. Um, I talked to some survivors who had ridden out the storm by perching on top of the rafters of a church. Oh. And this was, you know, a, a huge church. And they were there for several nights. They had all left the shanty town that was nearby and, and fled into this church. And, and they slowly just had to climb higher and higher up. And it took several days for those waters to go down. And they were watching, you know, family members be swept away in these, in the storm surge. And this goes on for days. You know, it, it took days for that water to finally subside.
1: And how much of Abaco is more than 20 feet above sea level?
0: Um, none of it it's, it's, none of it is. It's, I mean, all of Bahamas, I think the average height is three feet above (laughs) sea level. So Bahamas is basically, you know, this, and this goes back to why Bahamas became the way it is, you know, became this sort of tourist destination is that they could never grow things on this place. Like it's sand. It's basically like a sandbar. You know, it's not like other Caribbean countries where you have, you know, volcanoes and, and rich soils and you can have this kind of plantation economy. You know, that didn't never really happen in Bahamas because there just isn't enough um, good agricultural prospects there. So it's, it's extremely low lying.
1: You flew into Abaco six months after Dorian hit. What what did it look like at that point? What was going on there?
0: So so when you, you when you fly over it, it, it really just looks like a, a, it literally just looks like a sandbar. It does you don't really see a lot of land. And then that's especially true now because so many of the trees have been um, felled. By Dorian's winds. So so when you and, and then you land there and, you know, there's still just a lot of debris, at least when I was there six months ago, there was it, it was just piles of debris everywhere. The airport had been cleared out so you could land in the airport and the roads had been cleared. Um, but besides that, most of the structures had been demolished and the piles of debris were still kind of everywhere. So you can't really tell where you're going because there's no sort of visual markers of, okay, you know, here's, this is a home and this is a shopping mall and this, you can't, you can't tell the difference because there's no, you know, there's no signage, there's no vegetation, there's nothing that gives you that cue, <laughs> visual cue of like, this is where you are. So it's a very discombobulating feeling to be in that place. It looks like a big trash heap essentially with the roads going through it. Um, And the trees are very haunting that there's these, you know, and there be these old pine trees that they have there um, and they've all been stripped of all of their leaves. So they're just basically these tall stalks that kind of rise up. It's, it's very eerie.
1: You you wrote about seeing uh, lots of bulldozers at work uh, on Abaco when you visited there, were, were they at work on, you know, building housing to bring back the residents?
0: Well, that, I think that was the most striking thing about it is, I thought I would go there and there, you know, there would just be like this hive of activity of rebuilding and cleaning and everything. And it really wasn't like that. There were bulldozers in a few places. And these were the Haitian, the remains of the Haitian communities in shantytowns. Other than that, there was very little going on in terms of cleaning up or rebuilding, at least when I was there. And this was, of course, six months after the storm had had you know had ravaged the place. So the co- government seemed to have been um, very quick to get back into Abaco and to clear out all the debris from the Haitian communities. Their neighborhoods had been absolutely cleared of every last stick of debris, encased in fencing, new fan- new fencing with barbed wire on the top. <laughs> but other than that, it was everything else was just like as if the storm had just happened.
1: Now, I I know that the survivors of Hurricane Dorian included many people who tried to get into the United States because we know about this because President Trump talked about them. What what did he say about that?
0: Some of them did get to Florida um, sort of right after the storm, um, and that's when President Trump said, well, we're not taking anymore. And we're not going to offer them even, you know, the TPS status, the temporary protective status that is generally given to people who are, you know, surviving these huge traumas. And he said something like, oh, you know, we can't let them come over because there's uh, very bad people among these survivors. And this, you know, his whole mindset is so shaped by the 1980s and 90s. And and that was when there was a, you know, very active drug trade that was going through Bahamas. and, And I, you know, I think that's, Sort of how he was characterizing them.
1: Very bad people. Mostly the refugees from the storm ended up in Nassau uh, in the Bahamas. How has that worked out?
0: Well, many of them were afraid to go to Nassau, um, which is why they didn't evacuate to begin with. Um, then, after the storm, some of the survivors were able to get to Nassau. And Nassau is the capital city, of course, so it's on a separate island from Abaco. And they were put up in shelters, government-run shelters, which were re- repurposed gymnasiums and things like that. And um, I went there and talked to, the, talked to some of the people who are still there. And there was sort of a steady stream of hurricane survivors who were in those shelters just abandoning it because they, were, they felt they were being treated so badly there. If you didn't have work anymore in Abaco, then your permit was invalid. And so all of these people who had, of course, they'd lost all their jobs because their island had been ruined, you know, all the resorts were demolished. So even if they were able to hang on to their work permit when they got to the hurricane shelters, their work permits had been invalidated. And so they were kind of stuck in these shelters um, with nowhere to go. If they leave, they're going to get deported. You know, they're going to get detained and deported. And, and if they stay there, you know, they're not getting enough food. They're not getting, you know, they're not, they don't, they don't have any legal pathway. To go anywhere. They're not allowed to go back to Abaco. The government said right from the beginning that they're not gonna allow anyone to rebuild in the Haitian neighborhoods anymore, which were you know unregulated structures. So they said, Well, we're you know, and that's why they bulldozed it all, encased it in in fencing and said, You can't rebuild. Everyone else, yes, please rebuild Abaco, but not you.
1: So we've been talking here about a a small population that lived on a small island. You say that their fate and the fate of others like them around the world will soon have much larger ramifications for all of us. Please explain.
0: Well, we know that, you know, in coming decades, around 200 million people are going to have to pick up and leave from where they're living right now. We're kind of re-scrambling where you can you know, the the habitability of the planet is changing. Um, And a lot of us are settled along coastlines because of our history of shipping and and all of that. And those are places that are becoming more and more difficult to live. People are gonna have to change, change their settlement patterns and we can see that most clearly on an island, of course, right? Because there's no, there's no higher ground to go to within your own community or your own neighborhood or even your own nation. So they have to cross international borders in order to reach higher ground. So, you know, I think the underlying point is the climate crisis is a catastrophe of our own making and we need to address it. But the migration that has to happen in order to respond to the climate crisis That's not a crisis that is part of the solution. So we should be thinking about ways to facilitate people moving into new places before these climate disasters strike, you know, I mean, the tragedy of what happened in Bahamas is those not that those people moved, but that they couldn't move that they were trapped. And that's what made their situation such a human rights disaster. Um, And if they were able to move, say, they would only be able to move in a crisis-driven fashion, right? So you have this mass disruptive migration that happens all at once. Um, If we create legal pathways for people to move out of places where they're more exposed into places where they're less so, then we can change the pace of that kind of migration and the disruptiveness that goes along with it.
1: Sonia Shaw, her report on... The Climate Crisis and Migration is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. It's part of a global journalism initiative called Covering Climate Now, co founded by The Nation and the Columbia Journalism Review in association with The Guardian. Our partners include more than 400 news outlets with a combined audience approaching 2 billion people. This week is a week of joint coverage of Climate Politics 2020. Sonia, Thanks for talking with us today. I hope we can do this again soon.
0: I'd love that. Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener.